ITW Soundworks It was the summer of 1970 and the two largest companies in the world of football Puma and Adidas had made a pact between them that neither would try and approach the best player on earth for fear fear that a sponsorship so lucrative could easily bankrupt them and yet on June 14th the day on which the Mexican city of Guadalajara was set to host the World Cup quarter final between Peru and Brazil a certain pele trotted to the center circle and asked the ref if he could delay the start of the game all the world watched with bated breath as he bent down and tied the laces on his new puma shoes forever changing how the world of football interacted with its sponsors and after the events of this day puma hoped they would go on to dominate the world of football for the rest of eternity yeah right <laughs> enter phil knight and his track shoe brand from the city of portland oregon we do business the way we do business at the exact moment that the pele pact was being broken nike was still being referred to as blue ribbon sports and was operating out of just two stores in the whole of north america so how did they do it how did the american sporting firm succeed in its efforts to overthrow companies that were so firmly entrenched in the history of football We take a definitive look at how the world's largest sporting apparel brand hitched their wagon to the world's most popular sport. We look at how Nike turned the soccer world on its head and created tremendous value in avenues where most people saw none. Hello and welcome to the first episode of ITW Soundworks. My name is Ashwin Vijay Kumar and join us today as we take you through one of the seminal stories from the history of sports sponsorship, the story of how Nike conquered the football world. Nike began its football journey back in 1971 with the release of the Nike, the first football boot. It was one of the first shoes in fact to bear the Nike swoosh. which has become such an iconic part of Nike's current portfolio. It cost 1695, didn't hold up particularly well in cold and wet weather and soon fell by the wayside as Nike focused on running, tennis and basketball footwear. Over decades though, Nike learned from athletes research and testing on how to create football products that defy expectations and help players around the world raise their game. These were pivotal moments in Nike's history and helped shape a new era of brilliant football. It wasn't until 7 years later that Nike officially kicked off their football operations and the original football division signed the Portland Timbers to an equipment deal. The soccer division started the same way Phil Knight built the running business in the company's backyard working closely with athletes. Within just 2 short years Nike had signed contracts with 10 regional associations and had nearly 40 players on their books. These achievements were all well and good, but most importantly, they led nicely into the biggest year in Nike's football history. The stage was set. May 1982 final stadium Rotterdam. Aston Villa versus Bayern Munich in the final of the European Cup.
Williams prepared to adventure down the left. There's a good ball played in for Tony Morley. Oh, he missed it! And it is! That line of commentary you just heard was by legendary Englishman Brian Moore and has been immortalized in the stands of Villa Park, Aston Villa Stadium, commemorating the club's greatest ever night. However, it was a fascinating moment in history for more than just one reason. In a prelude to the apparel sponsorship wars that would come to define the 21st century, Aston Villa, with their entire squad kitted up in Nike boots, gave the American upstart their first taste of success in Europe. Remarkably, it was against the German juggernauts Bayern Munich and their established powerhouse of a kit and apparel manufacturer, Adidas, who began sponsoring Bayern as early as 1974 and continue to sponsor them to this day. This marked Nike's first major coup in European football. 82 proved to be the year when Nike made a real statement on the continent by then going on to sign Ian Rush, legendary Liverpool goalscorer, as their first ever star footballer. Rush went on to claim the European top scorer and the European Cup within the next couple of seasons. But Nike wasn't done there. 1982 also marked the start of their first European kit partnership with Sunderland. Nike's operations in Europe were based out of the northern part of England and the Black Cats weren't the last time Nike would venture into this part of the country to close a landmark deal. 1982, aka the year of Nike, reached its crescendo later that summer when Stephen Archibald of Scotland became the first player to ever score in the big one, the World Cup, wearing Nike boots. The die was now cast. Nike had established itself as a strong presence in the European market, but this was only the tip of the iceberg. We rejoin our story in 1993, when US women's team phenomenon Mia Hamm became Nike's first signed women football player and in fact one of the first in the US with a paid sports endorsement deal. Hamm went on to set numerous records, including the record for most international goals scored regardless of gender, which she held until another Nike athlete, Amy Wombat, broke it in 2013. The year after, in 1994, saw the collective football world's attention firmly affixed upon the World Cup final in California, which wasn't too far from Nike's world headquarters in Portland. This was something Phil and his company would have been more than excited by since Brazil, the eventual champions, had 8 of their 22 players wearing Nike boots. It was in fact two days after this World Cup final that Nike chairman and co-founder Phil Knight openly set his sights on sponsoring the Brazilian national team. Two years later, in 1996, Nike made its commitment to the world of football undeniable by signing with the Brazilian Football Federation, making good on Phil Knight's belief that we will only truly understand football when we see the game through the eyes of Brazilians. Signing the Brazilian national team gave Nike a powerful canvas to work with, and in 1998, for the first time ever, Nike chose to showcase a team rather than an individual in a major commercial. The Brazilian national team Killing Diamond playing some sensational football in the ad now come to known as Airport was directed by famous Chinese action movie director John Wu, who in fact directed Mission Impossible 2. 
built on the success of a slate of previously aired Nike ads and express Nike's philosophy of fast, freewheeling, creative and spontaneous football. 1999 saw another iconic game unfold in California with the US women's national team winning the World Cup in a dramatic penalty shootout against China. Nike athlete Brandi Chastain memorably celebrated the winning goal in her sports bra a prototype of Nike's interactive line of bras and underwear. Nike continued to build on this design philosophy of creating beautiful, athlete-informed apparel and began infusing technology that met the specific needs of footballers. The innovative approach led to things like knit-in mesh panels for ventilation, thicker areas for warmth and a flexible stretch woven fabrication. However, after having conquered the two most popular international teams, the Brazilian men's and the US women's, Nike began to realize that with the globalizing world, eyeballs were shifting from the national game towards the club one, and Nike wanted to be at the center of the action. And their chance was about to arrive from another club in the northern half of England. marked the start of a long-running relationship between Nike and Manchester United, the world's most popular team at the time. Nike poached United away from Manchester-based sportswear and football equipment supplier Umbro and created a hegemony atop the Premier League sponsorship charts. Nike was now sponsoring arguably the two best teams in the world's most-watched league, having already signed the champions Arsenal in 1994 and also, they continued maintaining their long-standing partnership with Sunderland. Sunderland, of course, had dallied with other sponsors after that initial deal in 82, but returned to Nike in the early 2000s and are currently sponsored by Nike too. Nike therefore became the team's official supplier of kits and branded apparel beginning in 2002, and the club would subsequently regain the Premier League title that year and go on to see a decade of unprecedented success with Nike right alongside them. 2002 saw the next major tournament, the Japan World Cup, and after the success of 1998 Airport, Nike's marketing machine had set itself a high bar. So the secret tournament campaign became Nike's largest, most globally coordinated effort to that day. The ad featured 24 Nike stars with events in 13 countries and a presence in another 52. Next up, in what proved to be a fortuitous moment for Nike, a snowstorm during an FA Cup game in 2005 made it impossible for the linesmen, commentators and the 40,000 fans in the stadium to see the white ball. So halfway through the game, an official replaced the sponsor's ball with a blue and yellow Nike Total 90, the first of its kind. That same ball went on to become the official Premier League ball and now Nike provides the match ball for the three top leagues in the world and the FA Cup. That same year, however, a three-minute video entitled Ronaldinho, A Touch of Gold popped up on the website YouTube. Created to launch a new boot, it showed Ronaldinho firing the ball off a crossbar several times 
without the ball ever hitting the ground. It caught fire and was quickly shared around the world, becoming YouTube's first million hit video. The era of the viral video had well and truly arrived. Nike, realizing the potential of this new form of media, went digital with the Joga Bonito campaign in 2006. The new approach was a watershed moment for Nike in particular and digital marketing in general. It involved a partnership with Google to create a social networking site and a feed of content leading up to the tournament and promoting new extensive user-generated content, something that has now become the standard in the world of sport. Nike's success continued when Nike club FC Barcelona completed the first treble won by a Spanish side and went on an astounding multi-year win streak that included back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back La Liga titles and a couple of Champions Leagues. The club was celebrated for its philosophy of team over individuals and a fearless attacking style of play, which was very much aligned with Nike's own principles. 2001 saw the launch of the Write the Future campaign on Facebook and it extended beyond the pitch and at the time it became the most shared campaign on the internet with the three-minute ad becoming the fastest spreading video in Nike football history. Four years later, they outdid themselves with the epic four-minute Winner Stays ad featuring Cristiano Ronaldo, Neymar and Wayne Rooney. And this became an immediate sensation, earning more than 140 million views on YouTube and setting the record for Nike's most viewed video ever on YouTube. Yeah, I want Neymar. As we move on into the modern era, this past Euro 2020 saw Nike and Adidas duke it out yet again to attain highly lucrative sports sponsorships. Nike currently ruled the roost in European football with nine teams outdoing Adidas's eight. Not too shabby for a track shoe brand from Portland. Oh, I hear what Knight's doing to the Stanford MBA, he's peddling Japanese track shoes. That's, that was a pretty big joke at the time. But I wanted it, so I said, I gotta try it. I gotta try so it. So let's go back to that day in Mexico on that hot summer afternoon in 1970. From that iconic moment when Pele bent down and tied his laces, with Nike nowhere near the field of play, Nike, within the next four decades, had come to dominate the marketing aspect of the world's most popular sport. Nike's secret sauce is that in their effort to create value for themselves and their stakeholders in the football world, they've launched a marketing and cultural revolution with respect to how brands interact with the sport and sport in general. Their focus on highlighting teams over individuals combined with their avant-garde approach to digital marketing and their strategic effort to create a vast range of products for their diverse array of footballers have left football and sporting sponsorships transformed for the rest of eternity. And that's not a joke. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. We are available on all leading platforms including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon and Pocket Cast. Please share it with others and leave us a rating and a review. 
This podcast was written and presented by me, Ashwin Vijay Kumar. Sound mixing and editing for this episode was done by Dheeraj P. Rao. The executive producer of the ITW podcast is Tarek Laskar. Our research team includes Devan Shubhat, Vaisak Raj, Vidushi Bandari, Riya Nandi and Kishan Mundra. Visit us at itwglobal.com. I- ITW Soundworks.